0: Hello there. servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the deepening alliance between China and Russia, the French fishing ultimatum, and how global climate activism has caused a schism to emerge between the industrialized and the industrializing worlds. All that and more, coming up. To the rapid-fire news and it's really rapid-fire this time because I have some thick juicy uh, stuff to talk about in the meat. So Ethiopian airstrikes have left six dead in Tigray's capital, Mikel. Now the targets were reported to be one of the rebels main weapons depots so that's where they make and repair their weapons and their equipment. Meanwhile the Cuban government considers granting greater rights to its people most likely as an attempted at reconciliation with the large-scale protests that have broken out over the summer. Well, yeah, it's late summer, but, you know, still summer. Uh, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan is now pushing for its billions in foreign currency reserves. Uh, or just reserves, money. Their money, they want their money that's tied up in foreign accounts to be released. As it has been withheld from Afghanistan uh, courtesy of US sanctions since the American withdrawal really since the Taliban took back uh, Kabul Uh, so they're upset about that I'm pretty sure Russia stepped in and said that they should be released as well I'm not entirely sure of that but given the state of affairs between the Islamic Emirate and the Russian government, I uh, would not be surprised. It seems the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan has found a friend in Russia. And it seems Russia is more than happy to have them. As, I, I'd probably be really happy to have Afghanistan as a friend, too. They beat one of your main rivals, uh, the United States, and forced them to withdraw. Uh, and they... They're a friendly country beyond your frontiers. Um, We're talking Soviet frontiers or Russian Empire frontiers in the region. Not what we see on a map when we look at Russia. Because when you look at the places Russia has their troops in, um, they have them in every single one of those Central Asian countries that used to be a part of Russia. So that's Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan. Uh, so the Central Asian former Soviet republics all have Russian troops in them right now. And all those Russian troops are guarding those countries' borders with the countries beyond them, uh, namely along the south with Afghanistan. But, um. Yeah, we, we, we've covered enough of Russia's de facto border expansion, it's specifically in Central and Asia. And in the Caucasus, but it seems like they have themselves a friend in the new government of Afghanistan on top of that. So really, really big gains for Russia in the Central Asian theater. And, well, we'll, I guess we have to keep our eyes on Eastern Europe now, because that's the only direction they have left to go. So, I expect, I expect something to either go down with Ukraine, most likely, Or we'll see Ukraine-style Russian separatist movements in the Baltics. And this time around, Belarus will likely be a willing participant in Russia's efforts to undermine the remainder of the former Soviet republics. The Union state is strong with those two. But that's uh, my little take on the current state of affairs with Russia and Afghanistan. Uh, The UN, however has called on the Sudanese military to restore the civilian government following the recent coup. And we talked about that last episode. Um, we talked about how the military should have just walked in and dismantled parliament. Um, now, the leader of the coup, uh, he sp- claims, he claims that the prime minister is living with him in his own home, I cannot verify that, uh, but that's what he has said, so in theme of giving as many sides to this story as I can, uh, as part of a minor update to the story, now that's what he says, uh, so we'll, I guess we'll just have to wait and see who's right on this, because like I said with Myanmar when they had their coup, you, if you're gonna do this, you have to do it right, otherwise you're gonna do permanent damage to the country. Uh, And You might not have a country left when it's over, because people will fight you, and that might tear the country apart, uh, beyond repair. Well, it really could be that way. Ethiopia has a chance of that not being the case, but then again, Ethiopia didn't have a coup, so there's a bit of a difference there. Uh, So far, Myanmar seems to be holding together as well, but only time will tell with situations like those. Very, very sensitive for countries, and they very appreciate, they very much appreciate not having outsiders intervening them, but the UN uh, very much appreciates getting involved in just those sorts of things. So we'll we'll really have, just have to see how it goes, but that's the little update to the coup in Sudan. Uh, there's international attention on it now. But I will sort of keep our eyes on that one cuz also talked about what destabilization in Sudan would mean for their neighbors. And it spells nothing good unless you're Egypt. If you're Egypt it's great. If you're everyone else it's terrible. So that's that's uh, Sudan. Uh Israel in other news, nearby neighbor, Israel has increased the number of new settlements it plans to build in the West Bank from 1,300 to 1,800, and this has brought on yet another wave of ethnic cleansing accusations by pro-Palestinian groups. It also seems to demonstrate my belief that, uh, and I said this when the latest round of fighting broke out, between, uh, what was I, yeah, yeah. So when the latest round of fighting broke out, between them, I said that the Palestinian question, that is, the state of Palestinians living within the territory that Israel technically has control over, but, uh, there's a bit of a quarrel between the two over the conflicting claims to the land, I said back then, when this latest round of fighting broke out, that this question, the Palestinian question is what I'm calling it, would eat up almost all of Israel's attention and their capacity for the time being. And it, I said it would constrain the geopolitical range of movement that Israel had, and that this would allow other players in the region to make moves of their own, namely Iran. And that's exactly what has happened, especially with Arabia basically pulling back to core territories to sort of reassess their situation. They're mending relations with not just Syria, but Iran as well. They're still fighting the Houthis, but that appears to be a somewhat losing battle, although a much more gradual losing battle than Syria was. Um, well, the, the verdict is still out on Yemen, but uh, uh, it looks like the Houthis are still, um, still on track to winning, even with the ridiculous casualties they've been suffering in their latest offensive, with hundreds of people dying in days. But, um, well, if they do win, they're definitely not going to be a friend of Arabia, I can tell you that. And that's probably why Arabia's still holding on right now with their coalition forces in Yemen, even if they've pulled back their own forces from the border. Because if they allow Yemen to fall to the Houthis, and I guess in Iran's case, if the Houthis just win the war... Then Arabia is outflanked because then you have Iran to your north, you have the Iranian sphere of influence along your north as well because Iran itself is actually to Arabia's northeast. But you're talking Iran to your northeast, Iran's sphere of influence and its allies to your north, and then you have an Arabian enemy, if nothing else, an enemy of your state in the Houthis to your south, straight south and most likely an ally of iran when all is said and done that's a terrible geostrategic position and that's probably why they're focusing still on beating the the houthis in yemen because if they lose that war arabia if the arabia loses that war if they lose that gambit they're outflanked and that's a Uh, That's just a terrible position to be in, because you're outflanked, not just from Iran to one direction and their sphere of influence from another direction, but from the same general axis. No, your rear is in danger because of where Houthi Yemen would be, the exact opposite direction of where the rest of Iran's sphere of influence is. That's a terrible position to be in that's an absolutely terrible position to be in. It's probably why they're fighting so hard and why they're so adamant on just unleashing the drones on the Houthis as they try to take more land and finish the war. Arabia can't let that happen. Now, I don't know if they'll ultimately be able to succeed in stopping the Houthis, but I can tell you they're going to they're going to die trying because if they don't, they might die. Period. No. Well, Or end up subservient to their ideological religious rival Iran and that would be tough but that's that's Arabia Um, and I I was talking about Israel and then the constraining of their range of movement has enabled Iran to expand their range of movement and Arabia pulling back and focusing down on this one conflict also helps Iran expand even including the conflict Arabia is focusing on because Iran backs the Houthis. What more can I say other than Iran is the dominant power of the Middle East? I mean, they're the dominant power. They, they're they more and more writing the rules. And they're writing rules around their allies and their alliance structure that I've very aptly named the Persia Pact. <laughs> I'll just continue to coin that one. Maybe it'll gain some steam. But they're the, they're the dominant power. They are the kingmaker in the Middle East. They kept, they helped keep Assad alive long before the Russians intervened. They kept the Houthis alive um, with aid, and it looks like the Houthis are going to win. They stepped in and put The Shia majority in power in Iraq after the devastation in the power vacuum of the US invasions and Isis It was Iran that stepped in and it looks like it's Iran. That's also stepping in in Lebanon and They're probably going to secure a stronger presence there as well courtesy of the oil weapon or in this case the oil tool Iran is looking mighty fine these days and Israel's looking mighty in danger these days, not just internally. Well, they're, they're, they're struggling. They're very much struggling. And it doesn't look like this round of fighting is gonna end soon either, which gives Arabia, well, not Arabia, gives Iran time to solidify their grip over the gains that they've made. And by the time Israel emerges, ...from this round of fighting... ...as I believe that they will... ...eventually... ...they're going to have a... ...really tough neighborhood to operate in... ...and that's saying something... ...when you're Israel and your entire neighborhood... ...hates you anyway... ...now they're aligned with a country that hates you more... ...I would... ...I would not want to be the leadership of Israel right now... ...I'd rather be the leadership of Iran... I, ...I have a whole sphere of influence... ...but that is that now we're going to move on to the meat of the episode and we're going to get to that in just a moment all right we're back and now we're getting into the meat and we're going to start things off by talking about and i guess this is an update to last episode but we're going to talk about the deepening of that sino russian alliance now i still don't have a, a witty name for this one uh, I'm still working on it still working on it. No You know, it's got to be at least as glorious as the Persia pact, you know, but um uh, Still working on the name The but uh We're just gonna talk about the the alliance getting deeper, so Well, I'll just uh, stop rambling about things that I don't have and give you what I do have so China is set to increase its coal imports from Russia to replace its imports from Australia. And with simultaneous energy crises in both Europe and China, both Europe and China are increasingly then turning to Russia for their energy. That's an observation. Uh, and for China, this is nothing new. They already had an agreement uh, with them in Russia, uh, and this was sort of a promise by Putin specifically where russia promised it would triple its energy supplies to russia for the month of october so that was last month now we're going into this month and now they're ramping up coal imports so it seems like the two are getting closer courtesy of the energy relationship it's a very complementary relationship i brought up the complementary nature of this alliance before China needs energy because they don't have enough of it at home. Well, beyond coal power, Russia has more energy than it knows what to do with. So why not give it to your country that's becoming more and more of an ally by the day? And that's exactly what the Russians are doing for a price. But China is willing to pay that price. So it's mutually beneficial. And meanwhile, Europe, on the other hand has a sort of a love-hate relationship with their giant neighbor to the east. They sanction Russia endlessly, usually in tandem with the U.S., uh, and they sanction Russia's natural gas along with the officials who run the country's supply of natural gas that is sent to Europe and around the world, too, but uh, Europe is a key customer. They do this, and... Those officials are very often the targets of these sanctions as well. Uh, basically, the, the Russia's entire economy is under sa- siege warfare courtesy of the sanctions regime, but their natural gas and their energy sector are particular targets. Uh, so that that's what I'm saying. But yet, Europe turns to Russia anyway for energy. So you can see the love hate. They, they, they love to sanction Russia. they love to talk about how they hate Russia. And then when the crisis hits, they the first country they turn to is Russia and not the Middle East, not the United States. Then again, the United States isn't exactly isn't exactly a player right now, you know. Uh, we've gone from being energy independent uh, to begging OPEC to give us a better deal. Now that is just a tragedy. Uh, there's a man responsible for that, but it ain't number 45, I'll say that much. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh, yes, so the EU turns to Russia for energy. Uh, well, is it really the EU? Uh, I guess the EU countries, the countries within the EU have turned to Russia. Because the EU itself uh, has not done that. They have chosen to accuse Russia of using it's natural gas as blackmail and as a weapon. Uh, that, that's what they do. Meanwhile, countries like Moldova and Poland have and are seeking to arrange a deal with Russia. Independently of the official EU stance and in flying in the face of whatever the EU officials say on the matter. And then there's Germany, who has a whole pipeline to themselves, which is just another... All all this creates just yet another rift between the EU and its own constituent member states. Uh, So, you can really see that divide as I continue to lay it out whenever I get the chance. And there are plenty of chances. But there's also another thing that I guess I'll mention now, using this as the example in that this is sort of what I mean when I say the EU is not a great power but paradoxically countries within the EU can be great powers. Germany is doing fine, they have a pipeline, they're an industrial powerhouse, France has a whole sphere of influence beyond Europe, Uh, Britain is an independent country, so I guess they don't really count anymore. But, those two are great powers within the EU. They can pursue foreign policy independently of other countries. Had it not been for the US and the UK, France would have had a submarine deal with Australia. Uh, but things changed on the ground. But, either way, France and Germany get to be great powers. But, somehow, paradoxically again, the EU, the institution that includes both of them, is not a great power. It cannot impose its will on anyone or anything beyond their own borders and the greatest example of that is the UK. They, they can't do anything about the UK. The UK just finds new trading partners. They negotiated trade with the would-be Kanzuk countries They're still in talks of a trade deal with the U.S. Uh, At this point, I don't know if they're ever going to get that one. But they're trading with the rest of the world. They have a trade deal with Japan. They'll probably try to go for a trade deal with India at some point, probably even China. They're expanding their trade while the EU is constricting it, not just abroad. They're they're, they're trying to stop the countries from importing oil from Russia, Uh, well, importing natural gas. But, while the British are expanding their trade, the EU is constricting it not just between EU member states and foreign countries, or trying to, but between the EU member states themselves through greater and greater restrictions. And it's, the EU proves by its responses to problems that it cannot impose its will on anyone living outside of their borders they they just can't and that is observable uh, especially now in the case of the energy EU says no you we're not going to import oil and natural gas from Russia Russia is bad but Moldova Poland and Germany are all getting natural gas from Russia And more countries are likely to be on the way towards negotiating a deal with Russia for natural gas. The EU cannot impose its will beyond its own borders and has a hard enough time imposing its will within its borders. The EU is not a great power. And yet it consists of countries that are and can be. It's the great paradox which is sort of why I call it the modern day Holy Roman Empire. But um that that's sort of the my EU ramble for now. But um yeah, it, this situation where you have countries getting energy from Russia while well, the EU says don't do that, it just creates another rift between the EU and its member states as if it didn't have enough of those. And but another thing I want to talk about is the position that this puts Russia in. And uh, the one word to describe that is incredible. It's an incredible position that all this puts Russia in, because Europe comes crawling back to them, asking for, begging, begging at this point, for energy. And you're simultaneously getting concessions and sort of a, a mini power trip over these people that have talked really bad about you for a very long time. You get to walk all over them <laughs> in the energy deals while simultaneously your ally in the opposite direction is also looking more to you for energy and you're just happy to help. And you win. Y- you just win. If, you, if you're Russia right now, you just win. That's, that's uh, I guess they've stolen the whole winning, winning, winning thing that Russia's just win. They just win. They just win. And so Russia gets stronger from this situation. China is able to hold its ground, uh, courtesy of the energy that they get from Russia so that they can do something about their situation rather than just being left out in the cold, figuratively and increasingly literally. It's like 40-something degrees outside right now. A far cry from the 60 that I had about a week ago, uh... And it's only going to get colder because winter's coming. So, China has an ally that can provide them exactly what they need and on short notice. Because remember, they that, that massive power outages and issues that China was having hit really suddenly and very abruptly and shut down like whole industrial complexes because there was just no energy. And then Russia steps in on short notice, increases the supply. I haven't confirmed if they actually did triple the supply, but I can guarantee you they sent more just for the sake of (laughs) making more money. But you have an ally like that that can fill the gap at a moment's notice and keep your industrial sector running while you figure something out. That is complimentary. That's an ally. That's a rely, that's a dependable ally. That's a great friend to have. And Russia's more than happy to be that friend uh, because a strong China in the East that is friendly with you secures your flanks. Russia does not have to worry about hostile enemies or countries hitting them from the East because the U.S., Japan, uh, countries that would otherwise be hostile towards Russia, are preoccupied with China just by way of China's rise in their strength. They're preoccupied with your ally and not with your most vulnerable region that is the Russian Far East. So Russia wins. China wins. Uh, Europe has to bite the bullet. It's its a very, very complementary relationship. It's mutually benefit. It's the exact opposite of a parasitic relationship. Uh, if although I've, uh, symbiotic, there we go, that's the word I'm looking for, it's a symbiotic relationship, now we'll see if that changes over time, which eventually it will, but whether that's in years or decades, uh, remains to be seen, probably at this rate more likely to be decades, I, I really don't see this alliance just sort of falling apart on any short notice, I really don't see that happening. Uh, as many analysts try to hype that up to be, uh, basing their assumptions off the Sino-Soviet split. But even the Sino-Soviet split took, like, what, a decade and a half before that happened? Between uh, China, Communist China winning the Civil War, and the 1960s when they had the skirmish along their border. That was a decade and a half, almost two decades before that happened. So, at the very least, we're looking at a decade of this close cooperation and alignment between China and Russia, except it's not on ideological grounds right now, it's on geostrategic lines right now. So, arguably, the alliance between them may last even longer, because as it stands, the United States doesn't appear to be doing any sort of meaningful withdrawal from conflict with Russia and China. If anything, we're getting dangerously close to... Getting dangerously closer to conflict with Russia and or China. Maybe simultaneously. I don't know. But um, those geopolitics haven't changed and they don't look like they're going to, at least until something happens and there's a, a, probably a war... So these two are going to stick together for quite some time, and that creates momentum which can propel you even further after the geopolitical situation changes, and you're maybe less symbiotic of a relationship. But nonetheless, the situation as it stands has brought them even closer together and has made the two of them even stronger. Uh, and although, although I should say that the continued surge in demand for Russia's natural gas probably uh, isn't going to last forever, probably isn't going to last forever. Uh, but uh, the current surge is probably going to guarantee that Russia makes up for any losses in the revenue or any downfall in revenue that they may have suffered during the two years of global economic lockdowns. So that's a massive windfall but again that windfall probably won't be long term but some of the consequences might some of those consequences might a deeper alliance with China is probably going to be one of them a Europe locked into long term energy contracts with Russia is probably going to be another one that creates wealth for Russia and wealth creates the ability for Russia to project power where is Russia going to project their power? Well, they choose they choose military by uh, they they project power through military by choice. and when you look at where they're projecting their military, you can see that it's the former Soviet sphere. They have Central Asia, they have the Caucasus. Ukraine is probably next on the hit list and then the Baltics are next after that. so. Russia has the funding that they need to finish what they've started. And if they don't have it now, then they certainly will in the near future as we're going into the winter. Uh, yes, so the consequences of this are maybe, may outlive the situation that causes these consequences. And, like I said, a deeper russia china alliance is probably going to be one of those uh, as china leans on russia for energy when it doesn't have enough and they if they're gonna use russian coal to replace australian coal then that's also long term because you're in a trade you're in a trade war with australia so that coal is going to be offline for the foreseeable future But once you've made the transition to using Russian coal, why would a country that's friendly to you, why would you then make the transition back to Australian coal, a country that routinely sides with other countries who are hostile towards you? Why would would you ever go back to Australian coal? You wouldn't, unless they were just that cheap. If it was just that cheap and the Australians just had it like that and were basically paying the Chinese to take the coal for themselves, you you'd never go back. That's a that's a that's a liability to go back when you can buy coal from Russia, a country that's friendly with you. That's a land route; it can't be harmed by sea lanes. You're not you're not going to get into some skirmish with the Russians anytime soon, hopefully. Uh, the United States can't intervene in it. They, they can't do anything other than give mean words about it, so that, that's great for you if you're Chinese. And buying coal from Russia makes Russia, that friendly country, stronger. It's mutually beneficial for both of them. Russia having a strong China makes Russia secure in its east. Uh, China making Russia stronger helps keep China secure in its west. It just all works out, especially when you look at where the Russians have projected their military force. They've completely covered the Chinese flank. Central Asia is not a problem for China right now. It's under Russian security. The Russians have that on lockdown. China doesn't have to worry about migrants coming in from Afghanistan. Russia shut that down real quick. The, the migrants from Afghanistan are fleeing by plane to the west. That, that like that's that's the degree of the mutual of the symbiosis that we're talking about here where they don't even have to talk to each other to benefit each other's interests because one country's interests just naturally feeds into and helps the others and so like i and i really believe that this is probably going to be a long-term thing this is probably going to be a long-term thing I say on the low end, we're looking at a decade-long alliance, but it's probably going to be a two to three decade alliance, bare minimum. That, that's what it's looking like right now. And especially if the two are going to feel the crunch of demographic inversions in a matter of years, they're going to feel even more insecure, and they're probably going to lean on each other even more for protection against the Western powers, who are going to be, remain hostile towards them, At a moment where they're going to be at their weakest. Uh, Internally, anyway, they're going to be pretty vulnerable. So, I see them leaning on each other more and more. Um, Yes, I really see that. And the supply of Russian energy to China has allowed China the breathing room to build more coal power plants and to ramp up their coal power. And that too, by the way, has also probably caused the need for them to increase their coal shipments from Russia uh, In a more long-term manner, which is why Probably replacing Australia as we speak So when this energy crisis in China is over and China scales down the imports of natural gas From Russia, there will still be the increased coal supplies from Russia Because Russia will have displaced and really just replaced Australia And That's a long-term trade That Russia gets the benefit from China gets the benefit from they are both secure in that trade It helps both of them. They get what they need and no one can stop it Like they have every interest in cooperating and all these levels and Even when they're not paying attention, they help each other so You can really see really see the beginnings of a strong Russo-Chinese alliance. And again, I will continue to work on a name, a nice witty name for that alliance, but, it's, it's happening right before our eyes. It's happening right before our eyes. But uh, that's that story. The next story that I want to get into is the French ultimatum to Britain. Uh, And the ultimatum is actually at the very bottom of my list, uh, my notes right now, but uh, we'll we'll, we'll get into it anyway. Uh, The disagreements between Britain and France over fishing rights in the English Channel have indeed worsened. The British fishing boats in the waters off the coast of the French port of Le Havre, uh, and that is a port in northern France, British fishing vessels have been detained, uh, and there, there have been French fishing boats that have, I believe, also been detained or warded off. But all of this comes after Britain denied fishing licenses to a number of French fishing boats, triggering another round of tit-for-tat over the issue of fishing and sovereignty. Uh, namely, sovereignty in the waters, which I can't help but feel that the French are eventually going to lose this one. When the British decide to stop playing nice and actually use that that lovely navy that they have, you know, well, it's not it's not as big as it used to be, but you know, it's, it's there. <laughs> but um, uh, anyway, back to the the, the thing. The, this this is um an issue that's been happening with these two ever since the British left the EU, which is. Why a lot of other people blame it on Brexit, but really this just seems like a disagreement over international law instigated by the French. Because, um, truth be told, the British have every right to do what they are doing, and uh, I guess I should explain what they're doing. Uh, the, the major issue here is that um, the British, again, denied French fishing licenses to a number of French fishermen. And the French have used that, the French government has used that as an excuse to basically hassle the British over this issue. Uh, and especially following the last major row that happened between the, the two countries over fishing, uh, and this is back when French fishing boats basically blockaded the island of Jersey, which is uh, British-owned islands right off the coast of France, Um The French fishing boats blockaded them just by swarming the islands and keeping boats from those islands from leaving Uh, The UK sent a destroyer to disperse the French and that's obviously a humiliation and The French were probably eager to get back after that So that's sort of where this is coming from although. It's a part of a larger thing going on between the two That's probably one of the key issues at hand that humiliation as to why the French feel so invested on this issue right now. Because uh, truth be told, the French have plenty of waters to go fish. They have the Bay of Biscay. They have the Mediterranean. They have plenty of areas to go fish. And they're a part of the EU, so they can, they can do Spanish waters. That's a long coastline. Italian waters. The Adriatic Sea. The... Uh, the islands off the coast of Greece, they have plenty of places to go fish. I mean, they, they can even go into the, the Baltic Sea and the North Sea. They have plenty of places to go fish, but they choose to pick this fight here, right next to Britain, in waters that are technically British. So that's why I say that this is a problem instigated by the French and not the problem created by Brexit, this is the French sort of being upset with the British, and it's causing issues between the two, and neither of them are going to back down on this, because the French are humiliated, and the British are dealing with issues of territorial sovereignty. So, will it lead to a war? I don't know, but uh, given the history of the two, they fought for less, so I wouldn't put it past them. But that's that's not at the top of the list of things I think think are going to happen. But it's a possibility. But anyway, the saga continues. France uh, last week warned that the continued denial of licenses, and these are fishing licenses, would lead to retaliatory measures as soon as, well, they said next week back then, but that was last week, so really it's this week that we can expect some retaliatory measures. Uh, and But really, we can already see the retaliation, hence the UK having their own fishing boats detained off the coast of France. Uh, but the retaliatory measures that were threatened specifically were longer checks uh, at French ports of all British imports, uh, a ban on UK vessels bringing seafood to France, Uh, Those are the two retaliatory measures that were specifically threatened. And I imagine detaining your enemies, uh, I mean, your rivals' fishing boats uh, is probably an unofficial uh, retaliatory measure that the French are happy to continue doing. Uh, France's European minister, well, their Europe minister, Clement Bion, uh, he was quoted, having said that France has to use... The language of force, Uh, and that was followed by him saying that's the only language the British government understands, and those are both quotes. Uh, And if that wasn't spicy enough, the French also then gave an ultimatum where they said that if the dispute over fishing licenses wasn't resolved by the 2nd of November, so tomorrow by the time of this recording, then it would begin imposing restrictions on U.K. vessels at certain French points. And I can only imagine that this is probably going to make things worse, and the British are probably going to retaliate at some point uh, on their own, and that their retaliation is probably going to humiliate the French again, and the saga will continue from there. But ladies and gentlemen... I said it. I said it in the episode a while back when we first covered these tensions and that first row where the UK sent a destroyer to clear up fish, French fishing boats. But I'll I'll say it here again: the English Channel is a flashpoint, and this dispute could lead to armed conflict. Could, all right? It's that's a pretty big could. Uh, it's not a it's not a, as much of a a near guarantee r- flashpoint as like um, the South China Sea or Taiwan or Ukraine would be it's not quite up there with the eastern Mediterranean and the Middle East either but it is a flashpoint nonetheless and should things continue down this road I imagine uh, two. Are eventually going to come to blows in some way, shape, or form, especially if the UK sends a destroyer to disperse the boats again and the French respond by sending a destroyer of their own. Or perhaps a bigger ship to upstage the British and then the British will send in a super carrier and there's nothing the French can do about that. Uh, I see these two being very petty over this issue uh, in the future. And that may lead to war, but I'm more so betting that it's just going to be a renewal of the petty competitions between the british and the french and that may have globe-spanning uh consequences it may like it did before but that's the british and the french and we'll see where that goes but now i want to talk about the climate activism and more specifically the great schism that it has created between the industrializing and the industrialized worlds. So, last week, India refused to set a zero carbon emissions goal uh, at a major leading be- a major meeting between world leaders. Uh, and while they have been met with some criticism over this, uh, I don't believe that them not them choosing not to set an emissions goal is something radical, and certainly doesn't warrant the massive waves of criticism that they received. Now, India had made a goal later, Uh, Modi, that's their president, he made a goal later to achieve uh, net zero emissions, and I believe later, as in today, (laughs) this morning. Uh, But the goal for them to reach net zero carbon emissions is by 2070. Um... But we're supposed to reach the point of no return by like uh, 2030, 2035, aren't we? Uh, Perhaps the goalpost will change again. I don't know. But um, like I said, a country like India refusing to make such a goal is not a radical thing. In my observation, these goals always seem pretty hollow to me anyways, as no one ever lives up to them. Uh, they're non-binding, so you don't have to live up to them, but everyone makes these goals, yet no one ever honors them. The great irony of it all is that uh, Trump pulled us out of the Paris Climate Accords, which was another uh, agreement between major nations to reach certain goals like this. Uh, He pulled America out of that, and then America ended up being the only one to reduce their carbon emissions by anything close to what the sort of general goal was, whereas all the other countries who stayed apart did not reach their goals at all. So that was... I guess that's one of the best examples of people not living up to these goals. Uh, The country that left uh, this agreement reached its goal courtesy of the uh, nature of shale natural gas displacing uh, dirtier fuels like coal and, well, not clean fa- uh, natural gas because shale oil is like really light and it's easy to process. So, and I guess, and also it's very pure because it's like stuck in the rock. So it doesn't get contaminated as much as other oil like the oil we're used to seeing where it's like black and tarry. Uh, the shale oil is pretty different it's um, it's more fluid. It's much it's a much lighter fluid, and it's purer. So when you burn it, it doesn't have as many of the same impurities that standard oil, uh, no pun intended, that standard oil has. So it's a lot cleaner to use than even just regular oil. Just the oil from shale is cleaner than most other oils. And then there's the natural gas coming in, replacing other fuels like coal. And you have massive reductions in your carbon emissions. But back to the point, these goals are never met by countries that make them. Um, And again, in my observation, it seems like every year or every few years, a number of world leaders get together and publicly announce that they will all unanimously agree to reduce carbon emissions and use more renewable energy that's what they promise and then immediately afterwards they all independently yet unanimously again agree in private to actually do nothing at all and that's why every year they make the goals again but no one ever reaches their goal they they agree to make the goal but they all agree not to actually reach it uh, then that's, that's sort of the quiet part that's never said out loud is no one ever actually intends on reaching these goals. Certainly not the people that make them. And then the next year they meet and do it all over again and over again. Now, some might call that a, uh, waste of time and energy. I know I do, but I think the more important takeaway from these sorts of agreements and uh, I guess the The breaking of these sorts of agreements is that actually, uh, well, the takeaway from these agreements that actually aren't agreements is the best way I can put it, is the divide that you can observe between the types of countries who make these sorts of promises and the types of countries that don't. And I'm really just using India as a good example here because they they didn't make a goal until they were pressured to do so. Uh, peer pressure is a mighty thing, but the divide I'm referring to is that between the already industrialized versus the industrializing. As it stands, most green energy is either unreliable or not potent enough to power large population centers. Or industrial complexes for extended periods of time. Solar energy needs the Sun to be out, wind power needs the wind to blow, and when the Sun is not out and when the wind is not blowing you need to have energy stored to sort of carry you over, but batteries are not, they're not good enough to store that much energy to carry a city through over the night when there's, when it's well, there's no Sun and there's no wind. Uh, certainly not enough wind to power the entire city so when you have these massive build-outs of green energy what ends up happening is at night they switch over to fossil fuels to carry them over until the daytime especially cities that have large solar arrays and it's just it's just not the energy isn't potent enough to replace fossil fuels and on top of that Unlike a fossil fuel, you can't have solar during the night, you can't have wind if the wind isn't blowing, and I know those are just the standard go-to uh, attack lines against those two energies, but it's true, it's true, those are, those are the Achilles heels of those two sorts of forms of energy, and they're the reason why you can't rely on them when they're out of their element, and so, what you end up happening is... People rely on fossil fuels, though. Simply put, again, they're just not cost in they're just not cost efficient enough to replace fossil fuels like coal and oil and natural gas. You can use those at whatever time of day, whatever the weather. Uh, so long as you don't have some, the weather doesn't interfere and get into your power plant. But you can use those whenever, wherever you can use them to ramp up. You can ramp up energy really fast. Uh, you can. Stop burning coal and you can lower your energy consumption if that's what the demand is. If you want to raise solar energy production, you got to build more power plant. I mean, you got to build more panels. If you want to raise wind power, you either need a strong breeze that stays steady or you need to build another windmill. Uh, But with coal, oil, and natural gas, you just increase the throughput because you're in control of the supply. Um... And that's the reliability aspect of those fuels and because they are potent fuels as well it makes them very attractive uh meanwhile green energy is promising but it just doesn't have the potency and the cost efficiency to replace those fossil fuels and if they did well then we we wouldn't be making promises to implement the technologies uh and then not implement them As a matter of fact, we wouldn't even be talking about making pledges at all. Countries would just do it because it made sense to do. But like I said, they are not cost-efficient enough to do that. They are not potent enough energy sources to do that. They don't have the reliability that they would need for you to achieve that. And that means that only the wealthy and already industrialized countries of the world are in a position to implement these technologies and these green technologies at all, on uh, certainly on a mass scale, where they could be moderately effective. Uh, meanwhile, poor, not, non-industrialized and industrializing countries, they can't afford that. It's Again, the cost isn't efficient. It's not cost effective. They do not have the spare resources for that, so they choose coal and oil instead now Russia being the quintessential exception to this as they are neither poor nor non- industrialized uh, maybe poor by European standards but those standards are pretty high to begin with and I guess with Russia being the uh, exception India would be the rule is they're a massive country they're very poor they're very not quite industrialized but they are industrializing. And their coal consumption goes up. Not their solar, not their wind, their coal, their oil, but really coal. And some natural gas, because Asia is sort of really devoid of natural gas in the Middle East. uh, They've gone all in on the cash crop of oil uh, to the neglect of natural gas. So India doesn't really get much in the way of natural gas. Uh, Unless it comes by sea, but that's expensive because you have to freeze it. So that it turns into a liquid, so you can transport it easier. That's expensive, so they get the oil instead. They get the oil and the coal instead. And they're industrializing, so India is the the best example of the rule, where Russia uh, is a country that uses these fuels is the best example of the exception to the rule. And they they are an exception to great benefit, as we have discussed between uh, when talking about them in China. But, essentially, what happens with these sorts of agreements, and the peer pressure for other countries to fall in line with these agreements, and make pledges of their own to reach net zero carbon emissions, is that you have rich countries asking poorer countries to behave as though they were rich, and then the leaders of those rich countries get upset, when the not rich countries turn them down. And it creates the great schism, the great divide between the two worlds, the industrialized against the industrializing. It's a pretty interesting thing that I have observed and I now lay it before you so like my other hypotheses, you can uh, observe it for yourself and see see if it carries water without sinking. But alas, that my friends, my lovely listeners, is all I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. The world is really, really changing. We're witnessing the birth of an alliance between Russia and China, which will probably expand into an alliance system, including other regional powers. We're witnessing Iran's rise, their continued rise, as the dominant power in the Middle East, courtesy of strong, capable allies in good places. We're witnessing Europe in a sort of forced reconciliation of their position and their relationship with Russia, all while Russia and China grow closer. You're really seeing it. You're really seeing the change. It takes a while to see sometimes, but we can see it. And because we can see it, we're going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.